hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 37 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with Andrea Lisbona, the founder and CEO of Touchland. Years before hand sanitizer became a daily essential for all of us, Andrea set out to disrupt the industry following the swine flu outbreak back in 2010. She created Touchland, a revolutionary brand of hand sanitizers that combines sleek, functional packaging with non-sticky, fast-evaporating formulas to keep your hands moisturized, clean, and smelling great. In this episode, Andrea shares with us her journey from growing up in Barcelona to attending USC to spending five years on product development for Touchland. She talks with us about moving to the U.S. in 2018, fundraising from investors as a hand sanitizer brand pre-COVID, and why she believes a CEO should stand for chief energy officer. Tune in to hear all this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We'd really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much for being on the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Touchland. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So where are you from originally? I'm from Barcelona. Barcelona. What was it like growing up in Barcelona? It is a really great city. You have everything. You have the sea, the mountains, and, and it's a, you have the, the history, the modernism, Gaudi. So I'm very proud of being raised in Barcelona. That's awesome. And so did you have any siblings growing up? Yeah, I have a brother that is 18 months uh, younger than me. All right. And your parents, what did they do? So my father is also an entrepreneur. Um, he started his company when he was very young and I have been raised in the, in a family of entrepreneurs. So I know what it is, the uncertainty, the risk, the, if we don't get this customer, we don't we cannot pay the rent. Mm-hmm. So that's why I've, I've always felt very comfortable with, uh, taking decisions with living in the uncertainty and to, and to like chasing for, for big goals. That's awesome. So did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. Always. So you knew right away, like when you were a kid, I'm going to be an entrepreneur when I grow up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like what it represents to be an entrepreneur, to be your own a boss to be able to, I'm a, I'm a hustler and I work a lot, but I also like, I'm a family person. So I've always appreciated to be able, like, for example, I had a dog with cancer to be able to go with my mom to chemotherapy with the dog at 11 AM and, and then maybe work until 2 AM at night, but this freedom and the capacity to, to manage your own time and, and like follow your instincts, which I am a very stubborn person and it's always good to, to be your own boss. And so your father was an entrepreneur. What kind of, um, company did he run? 
Well, he was an entrepreneur, but he had a distribution company. So he used to take brands and then he would create the sales channels in Spain. Um, he had brands like Master Lock, The Lockers, and, and uh, Charger Oil, The Barbecues. And it, it, my biggest difference is that I, I really wanted to create something that would really change um, the world. And, um, and that's why I did not want to distribute solutions. I really wanted to create my own product, my own brand and make a difference. Because I think like when you are a distributor in the end, it, it, you never feel it as yours. While if you're an innovator, if you will, I, I never stop thinking, never stop creating. So that's why we, I, I really wanted to change the path and, and become a brand owner and creator. So when you were a kid, you know, knowing that you wanted to be an entrepreneur when you grew up, what was like, did you have like a first business when you were really little that you started? Did you have lemonade stands? You know, do you have any stories from back then? Uh, no, but when I was like 15, 16, I really enjoyed partying. So I launched a lot of parties <laughs> and we made a lot of money back then. So With parties? It was, uh, yeah, yeah, we used to have parties and we even branded those parties. It was, it was a fun name, wet and wasted or something like this. Mm-hmm. We used to like make it as a business. We had bouncers and we had um, 200 people on the line and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, and I've always, since I was little, I've been very inspired by entrepreneurs and by founders like Gabrielle Chanel, the way she changed the fashion industry and empowered mm-hmm. women to wear pants and to have chains on the, on the, on the back. So you don't have to have it in your hands and, and also Steve Jobs and Dyson and, and other, other innovators that changed their own industry. That's awesome. So how long were you in Barcelona? Did you, were you there your whole childhood? Most of the time, yes. I was raised in Barcelona. I spent uh, until I think 26, no, sorry, no, 32 years old. I moved here in the, yeah, 32 years old in Barcelona. Of course, I lived in Paris for like a summer. I worked in Paris. Then I also went to study six months in LA, in USC. And I, that was, I think, the best six months of my life, especially having the freedom to live your own life, to not be controlled, to experience troubles by yourself, knowing that you have no one to solve them. The other person, like family, is across the ocean. So it really was a great experience and also getting to know a different culture. And that's also when I started learning about hand sanitizers and how people in U.S. was using hand sanitizers for many years and the pain points and everything. Interesting. So wait, when you were in college, did you have any first, you know, internships or jobs while you were in LA? Yeah. In LA, I was only six months, but I studied business school in Southern Barcelona. And I did work with consultants in a, as an internship and also in an agency of communication and uh, while I was studying and I really enjoyed it. What were some of the challenges that you faced in some of those first jobs that were great takeaways to um, building your company? Well, I think what I, what I learned, uh, obviously that when you're on an internship, I, I learn very fast and I'm also very, I cannot stand quiet. So I ended up revolutionizing everywhere that I go. I would take more responsibilities and I would take more ideas and, and I have a very good relationship with, uh, with my bosses back then. And they, they all said the same, like I knew, I didn't know at what reach, but I knew you were going to do something because you were like a hurricane. <laughs> 
So a hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So um so you got this idea for hand sanitizer. At what point? When was that aha moment? Well, I think it it was not an aha moment. I think it was more like the the personal circumstances and everything. It it kind of like a uh, consequences of everything. But I think the first time that I learned about hand sanitizer was when I was in, in USC and everyone was carrying this bottle in their backpack and they were using it. And I never heard of it. I think in Europe, the first time that I started learning about hand sanitizer was what during swine flu in 2010. Um, so when I went there it was in 2008 in, in LA and I started getting to talk to with people and everyone said the same. It smells like cheap vodka. It's so sticky and all of that. So back then I, I just simply thought why no one thought about doing something better. Well, if you have to do it and it really helps you to stay healthy, why like Apple or Dyson, why don't you make something nicer that feels better and that you really look forward to? Uh, but then uh, I came back from USC. I, st- I studied fashion design for a year and a half. The reason why is because I really, I really like fashion industry. And I, at some point after my business degree, I wanted my, my dream back then was to be the next CEO of Chanel. <laughs> and I said, you got to learn about process. I love process. I love to learn from the detail. I think like if you want to manage, you really have to learn fabrics, processes, operations, to, to be able to take the best decision. So I studied for one year and a half and then the crisis came to Europe and the family business was struggling. And I, I didn't even finish the fashion studies. I was in the, in the middle of the three year course, but I said, you know what, there come times in life that you have to take decisions that you want to help. And then I discussed with my family, I have this idea of hand sanitizers. I really would like to quit school. And I think I could create something within this industry that could be very revolutionary. So we started with the distribution rights of, uh, of hand sanitizers in 2010. And we learned from this industry for five years. And that really helped me as an entrepreneur. When you are thinking about coming up with a revolutionary solution, it's always good to know, not take anything for granted, not have any false reality, but really understand what are the industry from the inside. And, and of course, there are some other people that would just say, like, forget it, let's go directly and launch the product. We took five years of distributing solutions and getting businesses feedback, um, talking with nurses. We, we talked with many nurses that they would say, I have a hand sanitizer on my left pocket and a hand cream on my right pocket because my hands at the end of the day are like paper. <laughs> it feels so dry and everything. So all of this feedback really helped us to develop the the product that we that we have launched nowadays. I think it's so interesting that you really kind of um, found you like discovered this need for hand sanitizer and the problems that you wanted to solve way before COVID, right? I think now it's like, oh, it makes so much sense because everybody's you know we're in a whole different mindset. But you saw this even with the swine flu. Yeah, I think it's it's like brushing your teeth in the 1970s, like. I, I truly believe that 80% of infectious diseases are spread through hands every time that you get a cold or something like this. It's always because most probably you touch something, then you touch your nose or your mouth and that's it. And so that's why we truly believe like it doesn't matter. Like it's not a pandemic product. Like when you're interacting with the world, when you're touching a computer, when you're, I used to take two 
prior to COVID, two flights a week, I would take Ubers. All of this interaction that you're doing on your day-to-day, you don't need to be in a healthcare facility to use hand sanitizers. It really helps you out to be healthy on the go. And, and that's why we set up, because we really believe that this was going to be when you exit home, your keys, your phone, your wallet, and your hand sanitizer at some point. Not related to a pandemic, but because it really helps you when you're touching stuff and you're out of home. Right. That's interesting. So you took five years to kind of develop this product. Um, you got feedback. You like What were some of the things that you did in those five years that really helped you kind of like prove out the concept, prove out you know, a few different business things? Yeah. So the first initial five years, we distributed other products and we learned like, what are your pain points? Businesses like that, for example, many businesses said we buy this product, but we never know when it's empty. So users go to to use it and it's empty and it creates user frustration and bad brand image. So all of these kind of like, we thought, okay, we got to create something smart, something that tells you when the refill and batteries are running low. Um, then we would talk with nurses and they would say like, I wish this, this would not dry my skin. So the formula iteration, we iterated many times on the formula to get the balance between hydration, but without the stickiness. Because I think like one of the things that I really don't like about hand creams is the feeling of this like ventosa effect, kind of like it sticks on your hand. And But the more that you make a product hydrating, the more sticky it is. So that's why that's why we ended up creating a formulation that obviously we've done tests and it's hydrating, but at the same time, it's fast absorbing and it leaves like a smooth velvet feeling on your skin. So it was a lot of learning experiences. Like uh, I think creating a product is harder than what you think. Mm-hmm. And from, and I always say like also in terms of investment, like if you have budgeted one, like multiply per three or four, mm-hmm. because there are so many product concepts, procedures, approvals, testing, and all of that, that, it is a very long process and it's, it's not as easy as it seems. So that's, that's something that we learned on this experience. So were you full-time for five years doing this or were you kind of, this was a side hustle for a little bit? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> if I do something, I go full in. So since 2010, I've been dedicating to it. And while again, even in 2019, that the brand that we launched the brand in US in 2018, it's in December. So this month is going to be two years since we launched. Even last year, it was hard to raise funds because many people say hand sanitizer is not a sexy category. So we've been, I've been dedicated 10 years of my life and I started when I was 24. So almost one third of my life to this, but it, and it had nothing to do with a pandemic or and we truly believe that 10 years from now, five years from now, everyone will have a hand sanitizer and it, and it has nothing to do with a pandemic. It has nothing to do with fear. It just makes your life easier. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and the timing too with COVID is is really, I'm sure. I mean, how much have you guys grown since COVID happened? So um, the from year to year to date, uh, we've grown a thousand two hundred percent compared. And to that's even before COVID. You're saying mm-hmm. with the COVID with the COVID since year to date, December to December, a thousand two hundred. But already first year, we already grew 500%. So the brand was growing really fast. Um, we launched in December 2018, our.com. Uh, we experienced a massive 
growth on the community and the engagement and lots of press and celebrity endorsement that they did it because they really liked the product without any kind of payment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then six years after launch, we started our retail experience and we did not only want to disrupt the product category, but also the way this product was sold and marketed. So we said, instead of going the easy way, which is we're going to go to pharmacies and supermarkets, we said, this is a lifestyle product and we're going to be the first hand sanitizer to be sold in all fashion and beauty retailers in the U.S. So in July 2019, we launched in Urban Outfitters, Riley Rose, Revolve, Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom Holiday Pop-In, prior to the COVID, and also we launched in Alta in 1,200 doors. And we, we were sold out within one week. And that everything of, of those accomplishments were prior to the COVID. So we've been experiencing a very fast growth since we launched two years ago. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's really incredible. Congratulations on all that growth and exciting stuff that you have going on. Um, how did you come up with the name Touchland? And you know, your packaging is so cool and unique. Walk us through how you kind of thought about brand. Yeah. So in terms of branding, I think if you think of a common denominator of the hand sanitizer market prior to Touchland, is that the majority of hand sanitizer brands, they would drive people to buy with fear. And it's like, your phone has more gems than a public toilet seat. Uh, your computer has more gems. And and I think like we live in a society, especially millennials, Gen Z, that we like good vibes. And selling through fear is not a long-term strategy. So that's why when we created Touchland, Touchland brand was created in 2010 already. Um, that was with the opposite goal. Like instead of like these brands that are making you be scared of living, we're going to be the opposite. We're going to create a product that is going to help you stay healthy on the go and that it's going to make you live to the fullest. And that's why touch land is that like the land of touching. Like you should not be scared to touch because there are products that are going to make you feel safe. And that was where the name came from was based on kind of like a rebel standpoint of like, until now you've made people sanitize their hands because of fear. We're going to change it. We're going to say people go out, travel, have fun, and then just spray and be healthy. And, and uh, in terms of the product, obviously, um, when we created the product, we wanted to change everything. Um, so if you think about like the Goopil gel experience that you put it in your hands, you cannot measure how much you have. It spills in your bag. We wanted to create a bottle that it feels like a, an icon, something that you're really proud to use. And, and many people said it, like I never thought I would be excited about the hand sanitizer yeah. or thought I would get more compliments for my hand sanitizer than for my back. But everyone that pops the product, they're like, everyone just say like, what is this? That's the first thing that people say. Yeah. And, uh, and so we started with the design. Uh, we applied um, design 
strategies and design protocols that companies like Apple does, like the golden ratio and the divine proportion that is beautiful to your eyes and, and everything. And then also we created uh, a formula that, that also would change from the gel and foams and would be an aqueous, for aqueous formulation, liquid-based formulation that would be fast absorbing, would leave your hands velvet soft. And that at the end, that it smells really good. Like the last thing you want is that heat of alcohol that it really, it, it makes you feel like you're in a hospital. So that's why we created elevated sense that people is like, I want to be smelling my hands all the time. What are some of those top selling scents? Top selling is watermelon for sure. <laughs> I don't know if this year is because of the song watermelon sugar or, or what, but the finally is one of the best sellers. We sell a lot of unscented. And I think because many people always, always in general, people buy a scented one, but always they want the unscented. And especially you use it when you're going to eat that you don't want any kind of scent prior to touch the food. Mm -hmm. uh, and then citrus, like almost what I must say is that there is not an scent that doesn't sell, especially because one of the most successful metrics that we have is the average order value. Um, I think we, we've been able to do something very incredible, which is people is no longer buying hand sanitizers for personal use. We've been able to create a product that people buy in bundles, uh, either for themselves as a collection or they buy it for, for like as a birthday gift, like, or like for parties or as a, as a wedding gift. So our currently our AOV is about $60. So that's six times the unit price. So people in average buy in our e-commerce six units. So that means that having eight cents, almost all of the cents sell the same. Wow. That's really interesting that people are buying six of them. Is that because they're packaged in a group of six or are they really just adding six different ones to their cart? Yeah. Because we applied the bundle strategy. Like if you get more, like the price goes down and like mm -hmm. people really, when, when we started reaching out customers and we, we are a, a company that we really want to learn about the purchase patterns and everything. So we call when we see kind of like anomalies and like pigs and all of that, we, we, pick up the phone and we call those customers and we ask, how did you met us? And you bought like eight units and they say, yeah, it's like, I get it for my, my kids and my grandkids and I want to give them all of them. So it's, it's, I think the best part of Dozenin is seeing this shareability component that the brand has been able to create. Um, I imagine myself if, when I was 15 years old, if my mom would give me for my birthday, a hand sanitizer, I would be like, what? But now Touchland has been able to create this hype about hand sanitizers that never existed prior. And so when you were spending all those years, you know, like developing the product and just all the blood, sweat and tears that come into building a company, at what point were you like, this is working? You know, did you ever have that kind of realization. I'm sure you believed in it the whole time. Maybe you had doubts along the way as I think it's normal to have, but was there any kind of moment that you can think back to that you were like, Oh, I remember this one time. And it just really, that was the, we're doing something here. This, there's something huge here, just like I thought. Yeah. I think that when everything changes, when we decided to pack everything, pick up the backpack and move to us. Um, I think that was the moment that we saw that it changed really. The U.S. represents 30% of the global demand of hand sanitizers. And from 2014, 2018, we were like testing and like shipping from Europe and all that. 
But we were like, if we truly believe in it, we got to be brave, leave everything. And with all the sacrifices that this has, because again, I, I, the last time that I saw my family is a year ago, obviously it's because of COVID. I used to travel every four, uh, three, four months. But again, that's the moment that it changed. We moved here to US. We launched a Kickstarter campaign, was fully funded in 24 hours. Then we launched the e-commerce and it exploded. Like everyone was such a big supporter. The engagement that we experienced here was incredible. The beauty community, the beauty bloggers. Um, and it was at the beginning, it was challenging because we started talking with beauty bloggers and they were like, well, hold on, you're like, I've never had to review a hand sanitizer. I'm a beauty blogger. And so we said, yeah, but this is like, this, this straddles the line between skincare and hygiene. Like, and so that was for us, like we were the first hand sanitizer actually landing as a beauty product rather than a hygiene product. And it was funny at the beginning, it's hard, but then it kind of like exponentially grew. And then we started receiving 20,000 collaboration requests. And it, it, we had 34,000 people on a wait list for like a three in three week, week time. So it's been, we've been experiencing like this unbelievable, um, growth since we moved in us. And that was kind of like the realization. Okay. Well, the last eight years were just a preparation. Like I didn't waste my time. And, and again, it, there has been moments that especially when you have external factors that are not in your hands that you're like, how far should I keep going? Am I, am I, and even like people surrounding you is like, should you explore other options? Like you think yeah. eight years and it's like, and now many people say like, well, you did it. Right. Yeah. So it's easier when then it happened, but it, the finally you go through moments that it's like, you doubt yourself. Like, am I doing, but I'm a very stubborn person and I, I never give up, never, especially as I truly believe that this was going to be like the way Apple changed the phone industry or the music industry. I really believe that this was going to be something that would change people's life. It does kind of look like an iPhone too. You know, it's very Apple-esque. Yeah, the design, <laughs> very cool design. Yeah, the design parameters that we applied are like the golden radio. And that's like why Apple products are so beautiful to your eyes. Because they have this divine proportion that designers use to make products more beautiful. Interesting. Divine proportion. We'll have to look that up after the show. <laughs> so how big was your team when you moved to the U.S.? And did you move straight to Miami? I moved straight to Miami. The reason why is because we evaluated many options. And obviously coming from Barcelona... And like, we're used to like, uh, the kind of weather and everything. So we evaluated New York, but we ended up deciding Miami and we, it was, when we moved here, it was just my, my husband and myself alone. And then we started hiring people and like, right now we have like a 12 people team and, and it's been a great experience so far, but we came alone. It was, a, it was a very risky, but good with time and decision. Yeah. How'd your husband feel about moving to the U S was, does he work with you or was he like, yeah, let's go. Or no, I don't know how long do we have to stay? No, I think like he works with me. Um, and, and I think like obviously Miami is a great place to live. Um, but the weather is amazing. He loves fishing. So he, he can be fishing almost every weekend and, and we were excited. I mean, U S is the land of opportunity. And, and in, in our case, it's, it's proven to be a reality. Um, we were doing almost the same in Europe with no 
not like taking off. And then we moved here, we took the decision and we saw this massive growth since, the, since we launched. And, and so it was, uh, it was a decision that both of us were, were set up to take for many years. Do you think that, you know, having launched in Europe first instead of the U.S. gave you an advantage to kind of maybe iron out some kinks and stuff so that when you got to the U.S., you were able to move a lot faster? And if so, what were some of those things? Sure. I think like everything happens for a reason. I'm someone that never never regrets anything because you learn from everything. Um, so, for example, like we changed the formula. We iterated the formula into being more hydrating. We initially focused more uh, game-changing hand sanitizer, but then... We learned more and we said like, no, we want to position more the brand towards beauty, hygiene brand and, and many other things. We, with the scents, we, we did newest scents. We did, we changed the packaging. Initially it was like, um, in an aluminum kind of like approach and we felt it was too tech. So we moved into a more like white, clean, uh, bottle. So I, I do believe that everything happens for a reason and that, those previous eight years prepared us for these two two years of growth that we've experienced. Absolutely. So how big is your team today? 12 people. 12 people. And so talk to us about hiring. You know, how has it been hiring for a team? What are some of the lessons learned? And do you have any tips for other entrepreneurs? Well, in our case, the problem is that when you're growing at such a fast rate, it's it's very hard to also have the time and hiring takes time takes a lot of time. So in my case, I've been very lucky because when I hired, I hired with a long-term goal. So I, that's why I, it might take longer to hire someone, but because I really know that when I hire someone, I want that person to be with me until the end. And, um, we have not fired anyone since we, since we started and the people that we've got so far, we share the same DNA. Like we are all big dreamers, but we are humble. We are hustlers and everyone would truly share the same vision. It's not just me. Like when I listen, my team talk about touchdown, it's like, I, I, I get so proud because this was my vision initially. And to see people that is sharing with the same passion, my vision, it's, I feel like that's something to be very proud for any founder. Absolutely. And how do you hire for long-term or for longevity? What is it about someone that you're like, this will work long-term versus maybe a red flag and in interviewing someone else where you're like, I don't know if this is really like a long-term fit. Uh, I don't know. I, I hire not on, on resumes that I hire on values. And to be honest, I'm terrible at doing interviews, especially because I've never been interviewed. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's very hard. I started with 24 years old being my own boss. So I, my, my chief of staff, normally I, I even learn from him when he does the interviews because I'm like, thank God he's doing it. I would not be doing with so much detail and everything. Um, but I really hire on values and, and attitude. Like if I feel that that person is a hustler, it's a, it's humble, but at the same time has big goals and that's, that's how I, I go forward. And so far it has what is really good because again, it's all about the, the values in people. Like you can learn. I think like many people can learn when I started, I had no idea about supply chain and molding and injection and everything that I've learned that I'm like an encyclopedia of, of almost every, every kind of, um, plastic and component and all of this, which it's, it's something that I've learned on the go. So I'm more like, uh, I prefer to invest on people that I really like in terms of as humans than rather like someone that has an amazing resume. But I, I feel like that the, maybe the character, the personality is not there. 
Interesting. And so what about fundraising? Um, you mentioned that earlier this year, you raised $1.75 million. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced in the fundraising process? Yeah, I think what I've learned so far is that this should be a process that you kind of like get a start date and a finish date, do it more organized and kind of like manage it on your own terms rather than just like go from ball to ball, like just... It, I felt like I learned a lot. Um, I also think that it was very hard for us. Hand sanitizer was not a sexy category prior to 2020. So when we went to pay, pitch our vision and everything, everyone was just like, mm, no, we will invest on maybe a razor. And it's like, yeah, but like hand sanitizer also <laughs> is something that is very important on your day to day. But because there were no prior records or or the market size was not so big. It was not interesting for investors. Um, so for the next time, I I will be more more like setting up the the start date, the finish date. When do we decide? When do we take a decision? And that's it. Leave it or take it. Rather than keep these conversations that extended over five months. Right. So you you would create a start date and a finish date, basically. So you were you learned to pretty much be strategic about fundraising, which I think is something a lot of you know first time founders especially overlook in the process. They kind of just start talking to investors and think that they're going to just write a check after like a few meetings and forget that maybe they have to actually ask for the check and this is when I need it by and this is when everyone else is coming in and this is the day we're closing. Can you wire and sign by these dates? Um, Is that what you ended up learning along the way? I think so. Yeah. I think it was more like, uh, did you decide? Did you decide? Did you decide? And, And in the end, like, Obviously, the more that you delay, the less leverage that you have. So I think for the future also, like we will do a more like due diligence in terms of like we will cherry pick. We want these investors for this. We want these investors for this. We ended up, I, th- I always say we're very strategic. So even though the process extended a lot, uh, it was because we really wanted to select the ones that we really feel aligned. And we were very lucky that the investors that we ended up boarding have been like true believers of the brand, true believers of myself, trusted my instinct and stood by my side across all the obstacles. And again, no great growth comes without obstacles. I mean, this year has been challenge over challenge. It's not been, it's been exhausting because like we were producing part in China, part in Mexico, then China shut down. We had to move the malls to, it was Operationally, it was a very challenging year, especially growing so fast. But but again, that's why I think it's really good that you select investors that you're not going to have to be fighting when because you already have a lot of things going on in your business. Right. And so what were some of the, the best and worst, I guess, investor experiences that you had? Did you have if anyone who was, you know, kind of a, a naysayer and said, this will never work, you know, and now they're, you know, banging down your door. <laughs> Do you have any yeah. uh, funny stories? Not, not the investors that ended up being investors on us, but I can tell you last year we met with a hundred investors that they said, no, hand sanitizer category, no, sorry. I can guarantee 95% of them reached me out this year. And I, 
And I was like, mm, sorry, not in it right now. <laughs> but it's funny because all then they reappeared again and they were like, well, now, now we're more interested. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. now I already closed the round. Thank you very much. <laughs> They're like, when are you raising your next round? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It, it is funny. It is unfortunate because obviously last year was challenging for us. And now like all of these investors that they basically said, well, no glam. I don't see any success for you. Now they are here again. Like, well, when can we help you out? When do you need funds? So it is part of the journey. Yeah. I guess COVID helped probably a lot in that way. Of course. Yeah. It changed a lot. Like you, you only have to see the amount of like new brands that appear on the market, opportunistic companies that they are just trying to leverage a pandemic. While in our case, we'd be more focused on a medium long-term strategy and not trying to leverage um, the situation that we're living in. Yeah. And so, you know, part of being human, being a founder, you know, learning on the fly, we all make mistakes along the way. When did you feel the most defeated and how did you get back on your feet? I, a lot of times, <laughs> a lot of times. I think like uh, most of the challenges that I experienced was when we were initially in 2014, we developed our own product and, and again, you really don't know like when this process of developing a product comes, uh, comes to an end. We experience a lot of people, we want to buy your product, but this process of developing took too long. So I think that was one of the most challenging times, like trying to develop your own solution and not, not knowing as a founder, like all the, all the manufacturing world, all the, like you hire someone that's going to develop the idea, the concept, but then someone has to end up manufacturing that. And when there's an issue, they both wash their hands. Like one is going to say, well, it was bad design. And the other is going to say, well, it's bad, bad created. So I think it was very frustrating for us. And, and also we invested a lot of money. So I would always say when you try to develop your own product to be very well surrounded, and to get partners that are going to guide you through this process. Like it's good that you have an idea, but from the idea to the execution, there's like, you're going to experience many technical challenges, compliance challenges, and all of that, that you, you made at needing a partner that has done that a hundred times prior. So did you have consultants or advisors that you brought on that could help you through that process? Yeah, we, we had like partners, manufacturing partners that help us, like agencies that used to develop products. But again, in the end, it's it's your product. And if something goes wrong, like it's your liability. So it's been it's been a very exhausting experience, but it's it's part of the process. I think like also like even the best brands like Apple experience challenge on the presentation where the product doesn't doesn't work and it's Part, part of like creating something new and not knowing if it's going to fail the moment you present it or if it's going to take longer to manufacture or there are many processes in the industrial world that a founder, unfortunately, don't know until you go through all of these terrible experiences. Right. All the hurdles that you have to jump over and over and over again. It takes a lot of persistence to keep up with that. Um, what is a routine or activity or thought process that helps you stay on track and positive or motivated every day? Routine. I think in my case, it's I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I watch a lot of entrepreneur movies and when you feel like you are like touching bottom and you're like, Oh, like, what am I going to do? Then you remember, well, like for example, the, the movie of joy, joy Mangano, 
of all the experiences she had manufacturing and that they stole the molds and, and the design. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but it's, it's really good. I recommend it to you. It's from Jennifer Lawrence. And it's the story of the woman that invented the mold. Uh, and, and again, every great story comes with a lot of drama and a lot of like moments where, where you are like, what else? Like it's a Murphy law. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong. In our case, we experience that many times, but I think the long-term vision of, of your dream is what keeps you going. I think like the day to day you're going to experience like, again, many issues. Like I remember this year, um, we were experiencing like lot of demand and everything. And one of our containers, uh, had an accident coming and we lost hundred percent of the product. And those are the moments that it's like, think long-term, <laughs> this is just another rock in your way. But it's, it's unfortunately it's, it's movie material. <laughs> Sometimes when you experience so many things that in, in a like consistent manner, almost on daily basis or weekly basis. And I think it was Steve Jobs that said you, no sane person would do it. Like it's, you have to have passion for it because if not, you, you're going to go crazy with all this madness. Right. All the things that can go wrong and do go wrong can drive anyone kind of nuts and um, make you question, you know, if you're on the right track with your life. <laughs> exactly. Um, Passion and, and vision comes in. Like, and as a leader or, or a founder, like you have to inspire that to your team. Like, right. see you down or something. Like, again, it's, I always say CEO is not first chief executive officer, it's chief energy officer. Like, it's like you are the 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 booster of energy for your team. So you have to smile, keep going. That's another rock, like movie material, guys. We're gonna have the best movie in the, <laughs> with with our story. So I think it's it's about like um, having passion for what you do. I love that chief energy officer. It's so true. I mean, and it's funny, you know, I think as a founder, you go through all these downs and you don't really have, you know, feel like you can tell the team because it might hurt the morale. And so you have to like, keep it to yourself and it feels really lonely. And who can you go to? You don't want to tell investors that shit just hit the fan. So then you're like keeping it to yourself. Meanwhile, trying to be the chief energy officer of everything's great. We're doing it. We can do this. Um, yeah, it's it's um, a crazy roller coaster ride. Yeah. What's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? It's I wish I would have known about everything more. Like again, I had no experience about. I was raised in a comp- in a family that distributed products, so I never knew what creating a product would represent. So it's been many years of pain points and 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 learnings and all that. But I again think that. If every, every learning, every hit, every obstacle that I encounter got me to where I am, I, I'm glad that I went through it. I'm, of course, like I wish I would have known more, but again, it got me to where we are. And you never know like the butterfly effect. If I would have known, maybe things would have gone differently. But I, but I think uh, we've learned a lot. And, and again, I'm only 35 years old, but um, I feel like I have the experience of like, 60 year old in supply chain and manufacturing and logistics and, and all of that. Accelerated MBA is basically yeah. building a business. Yeah. Not even in an MBA, you learn so much about like processes and operations. Right. It's beyond that. It's like a double MBA plus. Like university. <laughs> 
starting and growing a business, um, obviously, you know, you grow a lot professionally as much as you do personally. Um, how have you grown personally as a leader? Well, I started very young. So again, it's, it's for me, like kind of like, uh, I'm not like, a the traditional leader that is like, like, a you have to get here at that time. I'm more someone that really wants to inspire people to do their best and to give their best. And I have been obviously learning a lot about how like manage people, how inspire people. And again, like sometimes you have to be careful not to give them too much. Like uh, in Spanish, you say like you give this and they take this. And so in the past, like for being too good, sometimes I've been like kind of like taking profit. So I've learned a lot on, on how to handle people and how to inspire people without obviously allowing them to take profit of me. I've learned about I would not say that I have, um, I would change anything. Like, again, I started very young and, and ignorant in many things. And unfortunately you learn through kids and, and through people. Like, uh, we've had many issues, like with these tributors that they would steal our, our brand and try to steal our product. And we've experienced copycats and replicas and we've experienced so many things that again, it makes you feel more realistic and more, straight to the point. I think, especially in Europe, we try to, when we start a meeting, it takes 10 minutes to, to get started. And like, we are trying to socialize now, now I'm more like straight to the point and you can see it on my face. So I think I've learned to cut the bullshit and to not, uh, allow certain things and like to have limits to, and to really understand what is the limit of what is acceptable and not. Kind of like creating boundaries. Is that what you're referring to? Like you've learned to have different boundaries with your team as part of being a leader? Partners with suppliers, kind of like establishing like some, a system that for me works really good and helps me handle the company with over uh, managing, with, with uh, over like uh, giving, uh, giving certain... Um, certain uh, rights to suppliers or to or, or with agencies or partners so i think it's it's been a uh, losing this like kind of like i would say like this illusion in life and being more realistic and straight to the point like unfortunately business is tough and and you have to protect yourself you have to be protecting your business all the time and and protecting the team and so I can, I, I have sometimes like, I'm like a, they say like a mama lion, but I really like to protect my team and, and not allow that anyone uh, allow, affects them. Yeah. And then to not take things as face value, it sounds like, and it sounds like you probably, you know, I think it happens with every founder. You grow a little bit of tough skin because of all the stuff you have to deal with. So yeah, you learn so. to approach problems differently. Exactly. Um, so if you could change anything about your journey, what would you have done differently? I would, I would have moved earlier to us. Most probably. <laughs> I, I would have not been so scared about like moving and what it represented because it, again, for many years we were like, well, let's go. Let's, uh, we actually had like some clients in us prior to moving here. We saw that fancy.com and many things, but I wish I would have took the decision faster. But I think again, thanks to that, I launched with the right product, the right time in the U S. So yeah, that's, that's the main thing that I, that I would have done differently. 
Yeah, I'd say timing it was uh, pretty great on your side <laughs> for this <laughs> being in the U.S. and then raising and then having everything kind of set up for, and then COVID hitting. It just it's pretty amazing how timing really plays a huge role in a lot of businesses. Yeah, but even even with COVID, like I think like in our D two C business, like we've been always selling out since the beginning. No matter how much we ramp up production, we're always selling out. I don't know if it's because of um, the great product, the fear of missing out, the the success that we have on social media, the community. Like it's it's been a it's been an incredible journey, right? Since we launched in Kickstarter, we we really like uh, exceed, exceeded our goal in the first twenty four hours, and that was July two thousand eighteen. So. Well, so before we wrap up here, what is the, you know, grand vision for the future and and what can we expect coming out next from Touchland? Well, we're just getting started. I think our goal is, um, we want to take these ordinary moments of your day, these everyday routines that you have and elevating it into moments of the life and into rituals that you look forward to. Um, we have started with hand sanitizers because we truly believe that this is a category that not only had to be disrupted because for 20 years was commoditized, but because it really played a key role into staying healthy and we want to do meaningful things. And our goal is to continue innovating with new sense, new packaging, new categories that are, that have to be disrupted that like hand sanitizer, you never thought about hand sanitizer could be cool. You never thought a vacuum could be cool. And then Dyson did it. You never thought uh, MP3 player could be cool. And then the, the iPod came in. So I think it's about like these moments of realization where like you actually take a commodity or a product that is forgotten, that is part of your day to day and you elevate it into something that actually you look forward to. Absolutely. And you guys certainly are doing that. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening to the show or just, you know, any business kind of operator tuning in? Well, the biggest advice is, first of all, I always say to find that idea, that, that concept, that, uh, that business that you really have passion for. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that they, that they say, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I'm missing the idea in that moment. And I say, look, when, when you have to get into being an entrepreneur, you really have to have that, that reason why that is going to make you go through hell. So that's the thing. Find a very strong reason why that it's no matter what they throw in front of you, you're going to overcome it. And then obviously the most obvious thing, but the, the more realistic is to have perseverance like and resilience. And, and I think that's something that differentiates like successful entrepreneurs from the ones that don't is that they never give up. And, and that's something that it sounds very generic and very typical, but it's the reality. Like we, we, I, again, eight years seems not a lot. Like for someone that was 24 years old, eight years is a lot. And by persevering, if you really have that reason why that you want to change the world, you want to make something that would be like a heritage for many years after you leave this world, you just have to persevere. Awesome. Make it happen. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, for being on the show today. I really appreciated your time and, uh, and sharing your awesome story. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. 
thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.